Would you join me today in Deuteronomy chapter 14? Deuteronomy chapter 14, we're going to be in verses 22 through 27. We're going to take a short break from Exodus. Um, We'll be spending uh, today in Deuteronomy 14. Deuteronomy is the last book of the law. It's a book designed to prepare the people for entrance into the land. And so Moses is speaking to this new generation, the generation that we've been reading about in Exodus has passed away and the new generation has been raised up. And so he's reviewing the covenant with them. He's reviewing the covenant that's been made. And Deuteronomy is divided into three speeches of Moses. The first is about covenant history. The second is about covenant law, covenant stipulations, what we ought to do in light of the history. The third speech is about blessing and curses. What will happen if we disobey or obey the stipulations of the law? And so the section we're looking at today is in that middle speech, Deuteronomy 14, and the law, the stipulations of the covenant. And specifically, the law we're looking at today is an exposition on the fourth commandment. The second speech is an exposition of the Ten Commandments, and today we're looking at the fourth commandment. In the larger section that we're dealing with, we have an explanation of festivals, of tithes, of seasons, which is an extension of the fourth commandment to eat the seventh day holy. And so we'll be focusing on this uh, tithe aspect in verses 22 to 27 of Deuteronomy 14. So as we read, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you today acknowledging that on our own, without your help, the words that we are about to read are meaningless. Without the guidance of your Holy Spirit, we may get some interesting historical insights. We may get some um, interesting ideas about Israeli culture. But we know that if, if we want this word to be true in our own hearts, if we want this word to impact us deeply, to change us, to have eternal value, that it needs the blessing of your Holy Spirit. We need your Holy Spirit to illuminate your word to us. And so we ask for that this morning. We ask that you would reveal yourself to us in these words. Would you change our hearts? Would you let these words not be simple history or simple law? But would you let them be our own heartbeat? Father, change us this morning for your glory and for our satisfaction in you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear God's word from Deuteronomy chapter 14, starting in verse 22. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. Before the Lord your God and the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. And if the way is too long for you, so that you are not able to carry the tithe, when the Lord your God blesses you, because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there, then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place the Lord your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves. And you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. 
And you shall not neglect the Levite who is within your towns, for he has no portion or inheritance with you. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Amen. Today is the last day of the year, December 31st, and so um, naturally you're probably thinking about times and seasons. You might be scribbling some New Year's resolutions at home. But in the, in the Christian world, we're also celebrating, we got done with Advent, and now we're in the middle of Christmas. And these two seasons, Advent and Christmas, are about the coming of Christ on two horizons. First, in his birth, 2,000 years ago. But we're also looking forward to, reflecting on, the second coming of Jesus. When he will come again to judge the living and the dead. When he will come again in glory make all things right, to make all things new. But, but Jesus' second coming does present us with a little bit of a problem. Because Jesus could surprise us. He could come back tomorrow. He could take us all to heaven. He could resurrect the dead. He could make us new. But more than likely, what's going to happen is, is you're going to go home. You're going to take your Sunday afternoon nap. You're going to wake up tomorrow You're going to be dealing with the same struggles and sins that have burdened you for your entire life. You're going to deal with the same difficult people, maybe not tomorrow, but on Tuesday, that you work with. You're going to deal with the same difficult people that maybe you live with. Your children are going to disobey you. And you're going to have to discipline those children. And all of those struggles, all of those problems are going to present themselves to you on Monday, more than likely. So for a lot of people, we tend to think of the second coming of Jesus as this sentimental thing. Yeah, maybe that's going to happen one day. That's, that's not important to me, though. It doesn't really make that much of a difference in our lives. And so the natural question is, so what? Jesus is coming, but what am I supposed to do in the meantime? Well, the Israelites are in a similar situation in Deuteronomy. They would have been asking similar questions as they entered into this new promised land. They're coming into this land that's been prepared for them with all these Canaanite people. But it's not quite ready. There's still Canaanite people there. There's still enemies there. It hasn't reached its final glory, the final consummation. Throughout the book of Judges, which is the next book, you, still, you see them still fighting against these other nations. The Philistines in particular. Even when you get to David... And Solomon, who were the greatest kings of Israel, they're still fighting the Philistines. They still haven't completely conquered the land. They're still in trouble. The temple still needs to be built. The palaces, the cities, all need to be rebuilt after the destruction of the conquest. So it's natural for them to ask the question, now what? I've entered into this land that's supposed to be a land flowing with milk and honey. It's supposed to be a land of rest. But it doesn't feel very restful and it doesn't feel very safe. So they lived in the same kind of kingdom that we live in. An already not yet kingdom. We've been promised salvation. We have the hope of the gospel. But there's still struggle ahead. We still have places to go. Jesus is not returning right this moment, although he could. The kingdom that we get to experience now is not in its fullness. We're still waiting. So God's answer to the Israelites is the same as God's answer to us. 
In the waiting, we're called to build God's kingdom and prepare his way. In this passage, you'll notice a repeated phrase. God refers to the place where he will choose to make his name dwell. Now, what's, what's happening here when God makes his name to dwell upon a place is that he's setting it apart for covenant purposes. He's identifying with it. He's saying, this is mine. He's laying a covenant claim to it. And he's calling us as his people to join in that claim. So in other words, if, if God calls us to build his kingdom, then we should be building a kingdom modeled after him and his kingship and his rule. And if the church is God's kingdom which it is, then we should be working not just as individuals, but as a covenant community to build a kingdom that looks like the king, to build a kingdom that looks like Jesus, that models God's rule. And so this morning, that looks like three things. We're called to build a kingdom where fear is natural, where joy is central, and where love is actual. We're called to build a kingdom where fear is natural, joy is central, and love is actual. So first, build a kingdom where fear is natural. Look at me with, look with me at uh, verse 22. It says, you shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God, in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. So here we discover the primary purpose of the tithe. God has called people to tithe, and his, his purpose in that tithe is to teach the Israelites fear. To teach the Israelites to fear God. Now, we have to discuss this anytime we talk about fear. This isn't simply a trembling fear where I'm, I'm kind of shaking in my boots, that kind of thing. That's one element of it. And, and there's, a, there's a sense in which we do need to be a little bit scared of God. He's holy and we're not. And you see that with Moses, who we, we've been reading about as he encounters God. He's afraid. But when we come before God, there's, there's more than that. His holiness, his majesty should, should strike fear in us. But the fear of God that he's talking about in this verse is a trust, a reliance a hope, and a love. You'll notice the Israelites are not coming to God trembling. They're coming to God actually feasting in joy. So this isn't a terrified fear. It's a hopeful and joyful fear. And ultimately, it's a fear that fosters trust in God. Because if you think about it, feasting requires two kinds of trust, and the tithe that these people are called to requires two kinds of trust. On the one hand, Feasting and, and the tithe that's part of this requires you to store up food. Now, the Israelites would have largely been subsistence farmers. So they're eating what they grow off the land. They're really reliant on the agricultural success of their farms. They needed the food that they grew to live. And it was kind of a day-by-day -day thing, a month-by-month, -month, year by year thing. And so it would have been a huge sacrifice. A huge struggle to take the best 10% of that food and set it aside. It would have taken a lot of trust in God in order to do that. So that's the first kind of trust. On the other hand, once you've stored up all this food, once you've lived on less 
than what was required. And you got this huge storehouse of your best 10%. What God then asked them to do is to eat all of that at once. To, to take this food that they've stored up and to throw a massive, opulent, extravagant feast. And so that requires a second kind of trust. Because they're looking ahead to the future and they're saying, you know, it would be really nice if we had this stored up. You know, famine could come. Our crops could die. It would be really nice to have some food ready to go just in case. Just in case the weather doesn't go well or there's a famine. And so you have this, this fasting kind of trust where I'm, I'm saying I'm going to live on less because I trust God. But then there's also this feasting kind of trust. A kind of holy wastefulness. That I'm going to trust God that he's going to use this waste, this opulence, this extravagance for his purpose. In light of God's grace and his mercy and abundance, the people are called to be abundant in response. And so these two kinds of trusts are dealing with two kinds of sins. A sin that fears the present and a sin that fears the future. In the present, we're hungry, we're in need of food. We have to trust God that he's going to provide that for us. And in the future, we're looking ahead to uncertainty. We want to be sure of ourselves when God says, no, trust me with the future. Now, going back to the purpose of this, that we would learn to fear God, you'll notice that these kinds of trusts are habit building. When we think about habits, uh, we often think of repeated actions. So if you think about your toothbrushing habit, and I hope that you have brushed your teeth this morning, you don't do that because you like toothbrushes. Nobody, maybe, maybe some people do, but nobody that I know collects toothbrushes because they're neat trinkets. We brush our teeth because we have a disposition toward cleanliness. Both culturally and individually, we value having clean teeth. We value having good breath. And so toothbrushing is a habit that comes out of a disposition toward cleanliness and a love of cleanliness. On the flip side of that, habits also drive us toward dispositions. So you probably force your kids, or you did force your kids, to brush their teeth. The reason you do that is because your kids don't have built-in ideas about cleanliness and hygiene. And so we instill this habit because we believe that by repeated action, by doing it over and over again, it will instill a disposition and a desire in that child to have cleanliness and hygiene. And so what God is doing here is that he's treating the Israelites as children. He's saying, set aside part of your food, set aside a part of your produce, that you may learn to fear me. And the hope is that as they do this, just in pure obedience, maybe even against their desires to eat heartily, to not store up food, that eventually their hearts will be changed. So the two things feed each other. As they set aside food, as they get into this cycle of feasting and fasting, their hearts will be changed, and their hearts will be changed to actually want to obey God's law. And so the question for you is, is this. Does, do your habits, the things that you do, foster a fear of God? Or do they foster a fear of something else? Do the things that you do, day in and day out, your habits, your patterns, your routines... Do they teach you to love God and to trust God? Or do they drive you away from him? 
Do you have these habits of fasting and feasting that require you to rely on God? Is the fear of God natural in your heart and in your home? Or does God just run against the patterns of your life? If you're just getting started, if you're a new Christian, this is something you're not used to. And it will, it will run against the patterns of your life. You're going to be cutting against the grain, against the way that, that your will works naturally to follow God and to trust him. But the goal here is that our natures, the things that we hold most dear, would be changed. That we would be renewed in God, renewed in Christ to fear him as we obey him. So what needs to change in your life? What do you need to foster a fear of God? We're called to build a kingdom where fear is natural. Two, build a kingdom where joy is central. Build a kingdom where joy is central. Look at verse 24. And if the way is too long for you, so that you are not able to carry the tithe when the Lord your God blesses you, because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there, then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves. And you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. So now all of a sudden we have a new twist in this. Most of the time, when you see a tithe or any kind of giving in the Bible, it's what we call in kind. So I have a field, I have 10 acres maybe, where I'm growing some crop. Well, I take the best acre, and I set that aside, and I take that directly to the temple, and that's my tithe. But in this particular situation, God has made a provision for blessing. The Bible has this constant strain, and this is one of the important themes of the Bible, of moving from infancy to maturity. We're growing up. And so the commands and stipulations, the strict law that we have early on in the Bible, give way to wisdom. That's actually what Paul says in Galatians, that the law is a pedagogue, a teacher, to guide us until we no longer need the law and we can operate by wisdom. And so the law for us has become wisdom. And so this is a case of wisdom, Deuteronomy 14, where God is saying, you are mature. If I have blessed you, if you are spread out across the land, then I'm going to treat you like adults. And I've sent you out on a mission into this world. And so specifically, what this passage is saying is, if you're too far away from Jerusalem to bring your tithe, it's because God has blessed you. And so Christians, you should know that we are far away from Jerusalem. We're far away from heaven. We're still journeying in this world, and we're still on mission. So that's the situation we're in. God calls us, even in the midst of this blessing, to return to the feast with our tithe. It's really easy to get out into the world, to take God's blessing and to run out into the world and get disconnected from the source of blessing. To go out on his mission and to think that, oh, I can do this on my own. I don't need to go back. I don't need to go back to the temple. I don't need to go back to where God is. I don't need to receive more blessing. No, I can go out on my own with the blessing I've received and enjoy it and still fulfill the mission. But God still calls us to come near, even after he's blessed us. And, and part of the work of kingdom building that he's called us to is to actually bring people who are far away back near with us, near to the king, near to his table, his throne, and his feast. 
The center of this feasting, the center of this bringing people near is joy. Now, joy is not an option. It's not a side effect. It's not a nice benefit. Verse 26, it's a command. It says, you shall eat there before your Lord, before the Lord your God, and rejoice. You and your household, not just you, you and your household as well, are commanded to rejoice. That's why we have passages like Psalm 122, which is a call to worship. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Because our call is to rejoicing. Joy is the emotion, the, the, the movement of the will that characterizes the kingdom. Joy is the thing that makes the kingdom unique and special. And so for you, when you wake up on Sunday morning, do you say, let us go into the house of the Lord? I was glad when they said that unto me. What does your household say? Or when you wake up on Sunday morning, do you say, well, it's raining today. It's a little cold. There was a football game late last night. Maybe I'll just skip. God has called us. He has sent us into the world with his blessing. But he calls us each week to return. To bring our gifts to him. To offer a sacrifice of praise. And to join him in his presence. To deny that. To say, no, I'm not going to come home. I'm not going to be connected to God's people. I'm not going to come back to the Lord's place, to the place where he's caused his name to dwell. To deny that is to deny the Lord's blessing. Like the prodigal son who, who takes his father's blessing and goes out into the world and squanders it. To deny the Lord's blessing in this way is to say, God, you have blessed me, but I'm not going to respond in kind in the way that you called me to. And so the question is, is, is joy central? What kind of kingdom are you inviting people to? If you're out in the world, if you're trying to be the blessing that God has called you to be, but you're not inviting people into a kingdom of joy, into a place where joy is central, then you're not being faithful to God's call. And so when we come into the house of the Lord, we come as a joyful people, rejoicing before the Lord. We come with joy as central. So build a kingdom where joy is central. Third, build a kingdom where love is actual. Build a kingdom where love is actual. Look at verse 27. And you shall not neglect the Levite who is within your towns, for he has no portion or inheritance with you. Now, you probably know something a little bit about the Levites. They were a tribe of Israel, specifically set apart for religious work. And so some of them were priests. Uh, Some of them are dedicated to the temple, and they're not priests. They're helping with the priests. But they're, they're this special group of people set apart to administer and, and help run Israel, both in its worship and its civil life. And so when, the, when they enter into the land, the, the land is divided up among all um, of the tribes. But because of who the Levites are, because of their unique call before God and before the people of Israel, they don't have an inheritance in the land. All the other tribes get their little portion divided up. But the Levites are given a couple of cities to rule over just for the sake of the other tribes as as kind of administrative heads. But the Levites are also not exempt from this law to come before the Lord to feast and to tithe. But since they don't have land, since they don't have inheritance, they don't have a tithe to bring. 
And so you see this over and over again in the Old Testament. The Levite becomes a paradigm, a picture of all of the poor and needy in the Old Testament. In Israel, no one is exempt from this law to come before the Lord. No one is exempt from the law to come feasting and to rejoice. But many people in Israel, perhaps quite a lot of people, don't have access to the resources to actually obey this law. And so this is where love of neighbor comes in. The people of Israel are supposed to love their brothers who don't have a portion or an inheritance in the land. And this is what we mean when I said that love should be actual. Because lots of times we deal in potential love. We say with our mouths that we love someone. We feel good feelings about someone. But true love, real love, comes out in action. And so how would your family feel if you said, Oh, I love you. I want to spend all my time with you. You're the best thing ever. But when Thanksgiving or Christmas rolled around, he said, Well, I think I'm going to go to Golden Corral for this one. How would your family feel about that? If you neglected them, even as you said, I love you. And so this is the kind of love that Israel is called to. Israel is called to a true love, a love that takes place in person and in real life. Now, this requires a couple of things. Actual love, real love, requires proximity. The Levites didn't go off in their own little Levite corner to celebrate. They didn't feast by themselves. No, they were invited to the same table that the households of Israel were invited to. Love of neighbor also requires sacrifice. Imagine you gathered up this feast. You've been preparing a year for this. It's going to be opulent. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be good. You would love to eat it all yourself and share it with your family. But you're called to bring these people in, these Levites. The foreigner and the stranger, as the passage goes on. The fatherless, the widow. All those who are within the towns who are in need, you're called to bring them in and bring them near. And that requires proximity, inviting them close to you, and it requires sacrifice, giving up the things that you have worked hard for. We have to be near them just as we draw near to Jerusalem, and we have to sacrifice for them. Because it's important to remember who this tithe is, whose tithe this is. We gather up these tithes. We're going to do that later in a very liberal way with the offering. We're doing this work of gathering, and Israel gathers up their tithes and doing this work. But it's not our tithe. It's not Israel's tithe in Deuteronomy. It's God's tithe. But God graciously invites us to be a part of his feast. He invites us to use his tithe to celebrate, to have joy. It's ultimately his tithe, his tithing feast that he calls us to celebrate. And as we are the fatherless and the widow and the orphan in our sin. So what areas in your life need actualized love? Who in your life are you only loving potentially? Who are you neglecting? Who is your neighbor that you'd rather not be around? But who still needs your love? This is our call to build a kingdom where love is actual. And that requires that we bring people close. When we come to worship, we're coming to a heavenly feast. We're coming to worship with the heavenly host. We're spiritually lifted up to heaven. This is all in Hebrews 12. 
And we're joining with those who have gone before, and we're participating in something eternal. So when we come each week before God, we're coming to the kingdom that he calls us to build out in the world. We're coming to a place where God is feared, where joy is central, and where love is actual. Now there's a beautiful picture of this in communion, which we're, we missed out on today, but we'll come back to later. But there's a beautiful picture of this in communion, which is God's tithe feast. It's the culmination of every Old Testament feast. And it's a participation in the ultimate feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb, spiritually. But when God calls us to his tithe, it's not just 10%. It's not just a little bit. No, Jesus gave his whole life for us. And he tells us to, he gives his body and his blood for us. He tells us to participate in that, which we do spiritually. And to join in him with building the kingdom, to invite more to the feast. He calls us to come to the place where his name dwells, to be the people where his name dwells, to be his body, and to join in his feast together of covenant renewal and of joy and of love. And so this morning, what is the state of your own heart? Of your own habits, of your own dispositions? When you come into the presence of God, come rejoicing. Not sadly, not somberly, but seriously rejoicing before the Lord and his grace. And as you come, be reminded of the love that Christ had for you. The love that he calls you to share with your neighbor. This is our duty and and our call this morning and each Lord's Day as we come to worship him. In the name of the Father and of the Holy Spirit, the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, now and forever. Amen.